Welcome to the Story Engine. We have returned for another chapter in the tale of Seven Hills of Rome. For those of you who have been following the series, we watched three generations of warrior families fight over the supremacy of the Mediterranean. But that was not the end. Oh no, dear listener! Centuries after being ravaged and destroyed by Europeans, the great African city rose from its ashes to conquer and pillage the great city of Rome. African Empire, you say? Why, do you not mean Carthage? Were they not all murdered in a cataclysmic holocaust at the hands of Scipio the African in episode 5? Yes, they were, dear listener. But no star can last forever, nor can it be totally destroyed. And to the forces of darkness, a thousand years is but a day. And the particle that remains is but a seed in search of fertile ground. And no act of mercy nor cruelty ever goes unpunished. I'm Tristan Verboven. Welcome to Episode 1 of Barbarian Dawn. This is the story engine. Our story begins once again with a rider. He is dressed in the uniform of a commander of the army of Seven Hills of Rome, followed by a small brigade of mounted soldiers guarding a train of wagons weighed down in chests. They've been traveling north for many miles, and with each passing day, the comforting trappings of civilizations have become scarce, and the lands around them have become more and more savage. The soldiers, who in their years of service, become accustomed to not knowing where they are bound, even now grow alert to their surroundings. Yet the commander is eerily calm compared to his men, who started every twitch and crack coming from the forest around them. A young junior officer rides up to the front of the pack, and as he approaches, our commander turns to him, only to say, we will make camp a mile up the road. How are the men? They are all on edge, sir, stammers the officer. Not just because of the precious cargo, but that we have never ventured this far from Rome before. Most people come from these lands fleeing for their lives, not with a wagon laden with gold and silver. The commander does not reply to this. I've only heard stories about these Hunnish raiders, but I've heard that they're cold-blooded monsters without human emotions, and that they live by the milk and blood of the very beasts they ride, and that they dress in the hides of rats and skin of men. Even the Goths who defended their land from Rome for a hundred years sought refuge with our mercy rather than face these devils. The commander chuckles to himself quietly. I've even heard that 
You know these savages well, sir. That you lived among them in your youth. Were you not given as a hostage by your father to ensure peace? Perhaps you see some kindness in them that others don't. This time the commander laughs out loud. <laughs> the Huns are every bit as savage and cruel as you've heard, young officer. In my time with them, I've seen acts of cruelty that I can scarcely describe. Men, women, and children living their whole lives without the slightest comfort nor pleasure. Just brutality and survival at the most visceral level. And from this, they are the finest riders, finest bowmen, and ruthless murderers to the mad. For though nothing of mercy nor fear. Our men have every reason to fear them and the dark scourge of these animals in body. Why do you think we hire them to fight our battles rather than face them in the field? But before the junior officer can come up with a delicate reply. Know this, though, continues the commander, that when you are in their company, you are in their world. Make no sudden movements. You will see things that will horrify and disgust you, that are commonplace for these creatures. Never betray your fear. They shall let you carry your weapons, but you must never reach for them. And never look the king in the eyes, even if he addresses you, though pray to whatever god you have that he does not, if your god dares follow you into his lair. He suddenly pulls his horse to a halt. Says the commander, holding his hand in the air to stop. They are here. No sooner has he said this than the men are completely surrounded, each of them with a knife or arrow trained to his throat. All but our commander, who greets the party with warmth. What an honor to meet Prince Attila himself! The leader of these men removes his hooded helmet to reveal a wretched scarred face and long greasy locks. Commander Aetius, my brother. When I heard you were on your way, I came out at once. I brought some men to escort you. These roads are not safe, you know. They share a laugh at this, and both signal to their men to stand down. The junior officer, who did not understand a word of their exchange, reluctantly complies. Easy does it, boys, says Aetius to his men. We're guests here. These are our friends and then to Attila in Hunnish. Are we not? That depends, laughs Attila, jumping off his horse onto the wagon train. As long as it's all here, he quickly looks over the cargo. My father will be happy to see you again. It has been a while. Come, let us ride together to the palace. As they move out, Aetius and Attila ride ahead together. The junior officer follows some paces behind observing the Hunnish riders. They are unlike any barbarians he has seen. By reputation, he's expecting giant brutes. But these men are stout and stocky, with large hairless faces, fat noses, narrow beady eyes, and scars across their cheeks. They ride as if they have lived their whole lives on the back of a horse. He's still yet to see one put his foot on the ground. After some time, they arrive at the palace, a large construction of timbers and stone. 
their horses are taken away by attendants, and the men are ushered to a nearby fire where they are given millet and mead. Aetius makes a stop at a nearby tent. A woman in fine embroidered garments, surrounded by attendants, greets him from a small throne where he gives her gifts of spice and silk. Attila then accompanies him and the officer into the palace. The center of the hall is empty, but all around the walls are dozens of seated warriors. As they arrive at their seat, the men are handed cups of mead in order to drink in honor of the king. The room's noisy chatter is then suddenly broken. All hail King Monjok! The men rise. And without a word, the barbarian king takes a seat on the throne at the top of the room next to his son, Attila. He drinks from his cup and returns it to his attendant. The men then cheer him heartily. Aetius and the officer are both handed another cup. They drink dutifully, and as the warriors start to take their seats, they do too. A variety of meats is served and then wine, and at each drink, one of the warriors speaks in their strange language of Munjuk's virtues and bravery. These toasts go on for some time, and when it is Aetius's turn, he raises his cup and in the Hunnish language, praises his host dearly. All hail our host, King Munjuk, great warrior and conqueror, a father to me, and a great ally to Seven Hills. I come here today to show my greatest respect and that of Rome's great leader, and to wish that we shall always have peace. The officer follows along with the spectacle, raising his cup. Hail King Munjuk! Everyone in the room drinks, and as they do, the officer notices two little men entering the hall with one of the chests from their wagon. They clumsily carry it up the steps to the king's feet, but before they reach the top, Munjuk stands up and kicks the chest down the steps. The two little men tumble down and everyone cheers. The chest bursts content. Gold and silver coins onto the floor and scatter. Aetius sees the officer's horrified expression and clutches his arm gently restrains him. Help yourselves, men! roars Munjuk. Courtesy of the seven hills of Rome! The warriors heartily scurry up and gather the coins in a noisy mob with the playful aggression of a pack of wolf pups. And when the coins are all gone, they retreat again to their seats. And now for some entertainment! More food and mead is brought out. Then musicians lead a chorus of drunken warriors in songs of hunting and bravery, followed by cripples and little people having their misfortunes mocked to the audience's delight. Then Attila, seated next to his father, stands up and announces a special performance in honor of the esteemed guests from the seven hills of Rome. The young officer looks around him nervously as the room goes quiet. Enter a troop of actors. The 
The narrator speaks in Hunnish, but the officers can see that the men are comically dressed as soldiers of Rome. Behind them is a little man wearing a crown of leaves, dressed in the clothes of the great leader, holding a child's doll. Another actor, dressed as a woman, pats the little man on the head like a child, and the audience bursts into hysterical laughter. The laughter continues as the female dotes on the little man while nagging the soldiers. The soldiers cower in fear of her and run off to fight the menacing barbarians dressed in animal skins, shaking spears. The great boy leader screams in fear of the beastly attackers to another roar of laughter from the audience. Then, from behind the curtain, arrives a man dressed as a Hunnish warrior, brandishing an axe. The mother hands him a large bag. He grabs it from her, laughing. Then, the Hun chases the measly barbarians away with a simple grunt to wild cheers. He then turns triumphantly to the soldiers. The room goes quiet. Attila, from his place next to the throne, looks over to see the young officer's expression. The actor, dressed as a Hun, pushes past the helpless Roman soldiers. The crowd roars with laughter as he proceeds to violently ravage the actor dressed as a woman. He then proceeds to ravage the actor dressed as a child as the laughter continues. This gruesome portion of the show goes on far too long until finally Attila calls for the spectacle to cease. That's enough, he announces. We must not insult our guests. The room falls silent. Aetius, who has not betrayed the slightest expression on his face this whole time, politely bows to his hosts and then leaves the great hall with the young officer to join his men. And that, my dear listener, is what has become of the great people of the Seven Hills of Rome. Five hundred years have passed since they defeated the great tribes on Big Water. But no empire can last forever, nor can any be completely destroyed. The tribes that once feared them now live among them. They were once their slaves, and now they share their beds. They once fought against them, and now they fight for them. And it is poor Rome that must find an uneasy peace with them. And at the helm of this sinking ship is indeed a boy leader, his doting mother, and Aetius half-barbarian himself, who must do whatever it takes to keep the Empire of Seven Hills alive. We now turn to the northern reaches of the Roman Empire, where the great Rhine River flows the natural border with the savage world a savage world 
in turmoil. The murderous Huns, who have arrived from the east, are now pushing the mighty northern tribes to the border of Rome. First, it was the Visigoths, who in exchange for peace and refuge on Roman lands, swore an uneasy oath to the great leader. And now, it is the Vandals, led by their king, Godzigal, who, after years of migration, terrorized by the Hunnish raids, finds himself refugee camping on the banks of the great river in the dead of a cold winter with nowhere left to go. Godzigal looks across the mighty river with his son, Geyseric. Rome is our last hope. We will never see our lands again, so we must give ourselves to the mercy of Rome's great leader. Seven Hills will be our master and protector, but we will be safe, if not free. A cold gust of wind blows at their backs. Godzigal turns to his son and from his chest pulls out a precious ring and a chain. For a king, I have very little left in this world. I have no throne. I have no palace. Not even land. And for treasure, besides my family and my people, I have nothing but this ring. Geyseric looks deeply into the rich beauty of its workmanship. He studies the encrusted warships and sea creatures. It once belonged to the greatest leader of men. Five hundred years ago, the mighty warrior and general Hannibal Barca of the Cartha people once ruled Great Water. Geyseric knows this story well, remembering campfire stories told by his father and grandfather. But he asks his father all the same. Was he not king of the Cartha people? King? No. He was a man of his own making. He took it upon himself to be protector of his people, to protect them from the growing shadow of Rome. Were the Cartha not great warriors, father? They were men of the sea, my boy. Merchants, sailors, they had a great city on the southern banks of Big Water. It was rich enough to feed all the people on it, and they controlled the seas. He gets lost gazing into the ring. Tell me about the great Hannibal Barca, father. He lived with his father and brothers on Sickle Island halfway between Cartha and the Seven Hills of Rome. And they held the trade among the tribes, but it was not long before Seven Hills would take it away. Another great gust of wind blows past these last words, but Geyseric persists. How did they do it? The Romans learned their ways. They conquered their fear of water. They learned to fight with ships, and in a terrible war, they drove the Cartha from their lands and seas. 
the Barca family found refuge on the western reaches of big water. Perhaps we too will find such a place someday, says Geyserich. But the Barkas did not stay still. Their father, Hamilcar, with this very ring, had Hannibal and his brothers swear a blood oath to avenge Cartha and seek war with Rome to deliver their homeland. This is Geyserich's favorite part of the story. But if they were not warriors, father, how could they defeat a mighty nation like Rome? The Barkas had to find a new way, my son. They had to find their courage. They had to learn the art of war. But Hannibal, a man of the sea, learned to be a leader of men. And he united the tribes of Big Water, and he marched them across mountains with a train of war beasts. But surely, Father, Rome's legions were waiting for them when they arrived. They were indeed, my son. But Hannibal took recourse to art, the great general he was, and in his cunning delivered every army that Rome could muster, no matter what the size, and he ravaged the lands as a reward. And so, he had his vengeance for Cartha? Nothing is so simple, my boy. Once again, a vicious wind sweeps through them. The great city of Rome did not fall so easily, for they had in their ranks the dreaded Marshal Scipio. He too was a great leader of men. <laughs> as great as General Hannibal, father? What Scipio knew that Hannibal didn't was never to fight a battle that you cannot win. So, he studied his Cartha enemy from afar to find its weakness, waiting ever so patiently for misfortune to strike. He was a general himself. He knew that an army marches on its stomach, stopped the flow of food, and stopped the flow of supplies, and they will begin to wither. Give them no army to fight, and they will find one among their own ranks. So when did Skippy finally face Hannibal? Sure enough, over time, the Cartha betrayed their own protector, and Skippy chose that moment to strike. Without their protector, the great city of Cartha was taxed to near death and then raised. The people and everything they were were gone forever. And from the ashes, Rome built another Cartha in its place. The city is as majestic as the Seven Hills itself, richer than ever before. And there it sits, my boy, in the warm African sun, the land of the Cartha. And all that is left of it is in this ring. Whatever happened to Hannibal? He opens the capsule on top of the ring. This ring that was the source of his power and his vengeance also held the poison that he used to take his own life. He closes the capsule, lets the ring hang free on the chain around his neck. Another great gust blows in a tremendous cold. He strains to speak as he groans in the wind. 
He was a man of his own making, and he would die one. At these words, an arrow screams past Geyserich's head and into his father's chest. Then another, and in a moment, the Vandal people are swarmed by raiding horsemen. The Huns are upon them, burning their meager tents and slashing bodies as they run for their lives. In desperation, they run for the banks of the great river. Geyserich kneels down to his father, who has died before he hits the ground, his face already lifeless and cold. He snatches the gold chain from his neck and puts it around his own. With no time for a goodbye, he makes a desperate run for the river. At the bank, the frantic vandal people are cornered. They have fled the camp in a trail of bodies, and now in a terrible panic, they huddle in fear. The Hunnish riders are all about them, sweeping through the mass in waves, hacking at the innocents as they scream for mercy. They must now choose between certain death or the dark, icy water of the Great Rhine River. As their makeshift village burns over the crest, Geyser calls out to his people. We must make our way to the other side of this river, to Rome! It is our only hope! But the people are unable to move. The broad Rhine River is glacial to the touch. And certain death to any who swim it. Let us put our lives in the hands of God, Vandal people, rather than the devils that devour our souls. Follow me to freedom and eternal peace. Without hesitation, Geyserich steps into the frigid waters until he is waist deep in the ice flow. At first, nobody follows, but when another volley of Hunnish arrows cuts into the crowd, one by one, Moaning at the cold, the Vandal people begin to walk out into the frigid waters. And as they do, huge sheets of ice start to form and break off around the mass of wading bodies. Within minutes, the giant ice sheets begin to gather and jam together until a pile forms in the middle of the river. With each passing of the Hunnish horsemen, more and more vandals brave the waters, causing the ice flow to buckle until it becomes large enough for them to climb. And as they do, the ice flow forms a jagged bridge across the great river, large enough to climb safely to the other side. As the Huns see the vandal people scrambling to their natural causeway, escaping to safety, they swarm down from the banks to stop them, but their horses are stopped at the river's edge. The beasts are refusing to brave the icy torrent. The Vandal people are safely in the land of Seven Hills, and as they pull their fraught bodies ashore, shivering in the cold wind, Geyserich, in disbelief, takes out the ring on the chain that now hangs around his neck 
and to himself he mutters, What great providence this ring holds for me and my people. It is for us now to claim our inheritance. The Vandal people shall travel to the western reaches of big water, to the lands of Hannibal, and to take what is ours, to liberate the great city of Cartha and its lands and its seas. There, there we shall find the kingdom of the Vandals. We shall fulfill Barca vengeance. And so we have it, dear listener. Yet another northern tribe has seeped ominously across the river into the great Roman Empire with a plan to make it their new home. They are not the first, and they will not be the last and like all the rest, Rome will grudgingly allow them to stay, if only to keep the peace. But back in the splendor of the seven hills of Rome, they have no idea that they have just let in the very poison that will be their end. The poison is held in a single ring on the finger of a young warrior, a wrath that has plagued Rome before and now, 500 years later, it is about to plague Rome again. So join us next time and watch the spectacle unfold. I'm Tristan Verboven. This is The Story Engine.